Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have part two of A Fourth Must Die by Benton Braden, originally published in the November 1942 issue of Thrilling Detective. Part one was posted last week, so be sure to check that out if you missed it. This story is included in our recent release from Brick Brickle Media. Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 3, now available in print and ebook formats. It collects six vintage pulp novels from the tattered pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore, and you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website. That link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 3, Blackmail on the Menu Danforth remained in the house alone all the next day. It was not until late afternoon that Lieutenant Reagan appeared again. He spoke almost apologetically. I'm sorry that I've been unable to report any positive findings. We've not been able to make an arrest. If a burglar murdered your wife, we have no lead we can follow. Murders of two other persons, James Haston, an attorney, and Edna Wales, his secretary, may or may not have any connection. It does seem a little strange that all these three deaths should have occurred practically within an hour. I knew Haston slightly, Danforth admitted boldly. I've been in his office a few times. He represented my wife. We know that. So we have to consider a possibility that his murder and a secretary's murder may be tied up with the murder of your wife. I'll frankly admit the mur- murders themselves were well executed. The killer left hardly a clue. Then you have no cl- leads? The killer went through Haston's files at his office. He took certain papers concerning Edward Vant from the files. The Vant papers were found beside the body of Edna Wales. Vant had a little trouble with Haston some time ago, but Vant denies he has seen Halston for more than a year. Claims he didn't even know Edna Wales. We can't prove that he is lying. Reagan paused and frowned just a little. I'm going to be frank with you, Danforth. It's a matter of routine we have to consider you as a suspect in the case. I'm not going to bluff, though, to pretend that we have found any real evidence against you. You will, of course, inherit a considerable fortune from your wife. That's true, Lieutenant. And I realize until the actual murder of my wife is found that some suspicion is bound to fall on me. There's no reason in the world why I should have killed my wife. Money? Why had all the money any man could ask for? Harry had authorized me to write checks without limit. Only last week I cashed a check for $5,000. I know that. Bank records show that your wife allowed you to spend money as you pleased. And that you spent a lot of it. Well, yes I did, but never once did she make any objection. There's no doubt in my mind that she would have given me a million dollars in cash if I would asked for it. Her friends bear you out on that. They say she was wild about you, that she petted and pampered you, catered to every whim. She loved me, Danforth said simply, and I loved her. There was a perfect understanding between us. We never had a harsh word in our whole married life, but in spite of all that, his tone grew a little bitter. I know how people jump at conclusions. Know that many people will say that I... Danforth didn't say the words. He gestured his disgust. There's only one way that such men can be silenced. The murderer of my wife must be found and brought to justice. Right, Reagan agreed. I'll admit that right now, Danforth, I am a badly baffled detective. I'm quite sure that I have evidence of murder right here in my hand. 
Danforth stared at the red envelope that Reagan held up. It was about a foot square. There was something in it. Possibly a sheaf of papers. Possibly a small book. Reagan made no motion to remove the contents of that red envelope. Instead, he turned and moved toward the door. Yes, I'm quite sure that I have the evidence here that will solve all three of these murders. He flung back over his shoulder. Trouble is, looks right now as though it's going to take an Egyptologist to decipher it. Reagan went on out. Danforth stared after him, his mouth open, his eyes worried. What was in an envelope? What could be in that envelope? The funeral was over and two more days passed. Danforth hadn't seen or heard from Reagan. His first alarm had quieted. The truth was that Reagan was wholly stymied. That red envelope had been a bluff. Reagan was trying to use psychology. He shrewdly reasoned that Danforth might have made a slip somewhere and that the sight of that phony envelope might send him out in an effort to correct it. Undoubtedly, Reagan had had men watching Danforth see if the little scheme would work. But Danforth wasn't falling for any bluffs. Now he was serenely confident they would never pin a thing on him. He was going to play it right, act the role of a bereaved husband. No parties, no nightclubs, until Harriet's estate was settled and the widower's one-third of her million safely transferred to Danforth's name. Then, a lifetime of pleasure and idleness without the annoyance of a homely and stupid wife. Everything would work out just right. It was a week after the funeral when Sterling Danforth dropped into a quiet restaurant, took a secluded table in a corner, and ordered his lunch. He was just starting to eat when he raised his head and looked at the face of the girl who was sliding in the chair opposite him. The girl was a brunette. She was good-looking except for a certain, certain sharpness in her features. Her gray suit was neat but showed signs of wear. Her alert eyes were gray and steady. How do you do, Mr. Danforth? She said politely. He frowned, stiffened a little. I don't believe I remember you. Naturally you don't. You've never seen me before, Mr. Danforth. What do you want? Alone, Mr. Danforth. Alone of five thousand dollars. His frown deepened, and he turned his eyes as though to look for a waiter. I wouldn't call a waiter if I were you, Mr. Danforth. If you do, I might call Lieutenant Reagan. He stared at her uncertainly. Why would you be asking me for a loan? I don't even know you. Who are you? My name is Gladys Hillman. Gladys Hillman. That name struck a chord in his memory. He had heard it somewhere, he was quite sure. Of course you don't know me, but if you're smart, you'll listen to what I have to say. You may be very glad to lend me $5,000 when you learn the truth. I am a legal stenographer, and I was a friend of Edna Wales. Danforth suppressed a start. He remembered now, Gladys Hillman. That was the name of the girl that Edna Wales had recommended to him as a secretary when he'd used the subterfuge to get a position to drive the knife into her back. But Edna had never had an opportunity to call Gladys Hillman. Gladys couldn't possibly know anything. Edna Wales? What of it? I didn't know Edna Wales. Her gray eyes went steely. You didn't have to know her to kill her. You must be crazy. I'm not crazy, and if you're smart, you'll listen to me until I am through. I'm the one person in the world that knows the truth. You must have acted very quickly when you got into Edna's apartment. You didn't give her a chance to talk. Otherwise, you'd have known that I substituted for her that day. She had a sore throat. She called me that morning. She knew I was out of work, and she asked me to take her place for the day. I did. I took James Haston's t- dictation that day. Well, Edna stayed in an apartment and nursed her sore throat. It's a good thing for you I did. Some other girl might not have been as reasonable as I am. Danforth had to fight to conceal his consternation. 
Now I recalled the odor of turpentine. The cloth had been tied about Edna's neck. He saw his mistake now, but he was not going to make another equally foolish one. I haven't the least idea what you're driving at. The notebook, you fool. You went to the trouble of taking the copies from the files, but you forgot the notebook. Edna's notebook that I wrote in that day. Lieutenant Reagan grabbed that notebook the first thing, and he's been moving heaven and earth to get somebody to read the notes. Most people think that one stenographer can read another one's notes, but that's not true. Every steno develops a style of her own. The stuff that most of them wind up with looks nothing like the fine examples in the books. That's a break for you, Danforth. Reagan can't get anyone that can read my shorthand notes. Nobody else on earth can transcribe the hieroglyphics I use. Sterling Danforth sat rigid, his usually calculating mind in a turmoil. It was plain enough now. Reagan hadn't been bluffing about that red envelope. He had had that notebook in it. The notebook was supposed to contain the shorthand notes of Edna Wales for the day of the murder. But before him was the girl who had actually taken the dictation. This girl had him. He wouldn't dare challenge her to go to Reagan. If she didn't remember exactly what she had written that day, she could read her own note and expose the truth, and that would send him to the chair. Relax, Danforth. Take it easy. You don't have to admit a thing to me. All I ask is that you lend me $5,000. Your wife, Haston, and Edna Wales are dead now. Nothing I can do will bring them back. The only problem I had was to turn you over to the police or collect some easy money myself. Well, I've been poor all my life. Why shouldn't I have some of the... the proceeds? You won't even miss what you lend me. Is it a deal? She was smiling a little, but there was a threat in those last words. Danforth recovered his poise. I'll lend you 5000 I certainly don't admit a word of what you say. But publicity at this time would be very bad. I'm a suspect, no matter how innocent I actually am. So I'll lend you the money. However, I can't get it just now. You'll have... That's okay. I know the estate hasn't been turned over to you yet. I can wait till you get your hands on some of that money. At least they'll give you a big allowance out of it in a few days. Yes, yeah, the thing I can get it for you in about a week. Shall I deliver it? You leave that to me. I'll get in touch with you. I'll meet you somewhere and you can hand me the money. No one will be a bit the wiser. She rose from the chair and walked rapidly away. He watched her until she had gone out the entrance and his face darkened. Rage swept over him. He was sure of only one thing. He would have to commit one more murder. That girl Gladys Hillman must die. He could never take another easy breath as long as she lived. That first 5000 would be only a starter. She soon learned how easy it was to spend easy money and how easy it was to get it. She'd be asked back, asking for ten, twenty thousand, more, and more all the time. She'd be a far worse millstone than Harriet had been. If she became angry with him, if he displeased her in any way, she might tell Reagan the truth. Then there was a chance that Reagan might find out that she had worked for James Haston that day. If Reagan found that out, he'd break her and get the truth out of her. So he, Sterling Danforth, would have to take the risk of committing murder one more time. The risk was preferable to the constant danger he'd have to face if Gladys Hillman lived. He'd have ample time to plan carefully and to reduce the risk to a minimum. He wasted no time. After he'd made the motions of eating his lunch, he hurried from the restaurant. He consulted a phone directory and found that Gladys Hillman was not listed. But he found her name in the city directory. Her address was listed as 4387 Linton Street. First, he had to check to see if she still lived there. He didn't dare walk past the building and see if her name was on a mailbox. If she saw him, she'd know that was in his mind. She was afraid of him already. So afraid that she was going to make him hand her the money in a public place. Chapter 4 A Fourth Must Die 
The next night, Danforth first made sure that no one was following him. Then he went to Linton Street and took his post in a dark doorway across the street. He was in luck. He waited hardly more than 30 minutes when he saw Gladys Hillman emerge from the building across the street. She turned to her right and walked on. Danforth waited until she had gone almost a block and then followed her. She went four blocks and entered a movie theater. Danforth retraced his steps to 4387 Linton Street. He stopped and looked at the mailboxes. Gladys Hillman's apartment was on the third, the top floor. He walked down a narrow court, looked up at the rear of the building. There was a fire escape at each side of the rear wall. Danforth fingered the steel chisel in his pocket. Why wait? The girl had spent at least two hours in that movie. Why wait if you could act now? He went around to the front of the building, entered it, climbed the stairs to the third floor. He walked down the hall to the last door on the right. The name card in the holder read Gladys Hillman. There was no other name, so he was sure she lived alone. But he doubly sure he punched the button on the side of the door. He could hear the buzzer sounding inside, but no one came to answer the ring. The stairs that led to the roof were just to his left. He went up, opened the door that led into the small penthouse. He unhooked another door and stepped out on the roof. He felt his way to the edge of the roof and looked down. The top landing of the fire escape was just below the rear window, and that window opened into Gladys Hillman's rooms. There was a short drop to that landing. There was a maze of clotheslines behind him, and it took him only about five minutes to find heavy cord of sufficient length. He doubled it, took his chisel, and cut out some of the mortar between two bricks and the coping. He tied a big knot in one end of the cords that would anchor it on the roof end. Even if the cord failed to hold, he wouldn't have too great a fall. But the cord held, and he slid down to the landing without a sound. He slipped the thin edge of his chisel under the window. It wasn't even locked and came up easily. He stepped into the room, took a flashlight from his pocket, used it briefly, and saw that he was in a small kitchen. He lowered the window behind him and went on through the apartment. There were two small rooms and a bath. Now all he had to do was wait. It would be easy to do it when the time came. He'd flatten himself against the wall a yard or so from the door. He'd wait until she had closed the door and turned on the light. Then he'd leap before she had time to cry out. He got a chair and sat down near the wall. The minutes dragged by. He frequently used his flash and looked at his watch. She'd been gone nearly two hours when he thought he heard a sound. He listened. He couldn't be sure, but it sounded as it came from the kitchen. He went swiftly to investigate. But he found nothing. He looked out the kitchen window. There was no shadow on the fire escape, just a creaking noise in an old building, he decided, and turned back to the living room. He stepped into the living room, and the lights flashed on. Gladys Hillman stood just inside the door. There was a gun in her hand, and she held it very steadily at Danforth's chest. Drop the chisel! Drop it, Danforth. I'll shoot it an instant if you don't. Danforth dropped the chisel, watched the muzzle of that gun. It was fortunate I knew you were a cold-blooded killer, Danforth. I had a hunch you would not play it straight with me that you would choose a cheaper and safer way out. With me dead, you'd be absolutely in the clear, wouldn't you? What I ought to do is call the police and tell them the truth. You've got me all wrong. I came here because I had to talk to you. About what? About marriage, Gladys. I know you want money. So I knew, saw the safest thing for both of us to do was marry. A legal point, you see. Neither of us could testify against the other no matter what happened. I thought we could be married at once and keep it secret. Were you going to use that chisel for an engagement ring? She asked with sarcasm. I didn't have a key to get in your apartment, so I had to use the chisel to get in. I didn't know when you'd call me again, and I wanted to speak to you about marriage at once. I'm honored, she said. It's the first proposal I've ever had from a three-time killer. I've got just one objection. I'm afraid if I married you, I'd quickly become number four. You strangled your first wife. I wonder how you dispose of me. Don't be ridiculous. His mask of innocence slipped away. Harry deserved that fate. Circumstances made it unavoidable.
You got eaten in Wales with a knife. That was unfortunate. However, I had to protect myself. You got murder on the brain, Danforth. You came here tonight to save yourself again. Danforth was becoming worried. His carefully laid plan was not succeeding. He would have to buy her off, for a while anyway. This whole discussion is most distasteful. If you so wish it, you will have all the fine clothes and the best of everything. In fact, if you have any silly notions as to my intentions, you can employ a bodyguard. If I were you, I'd think it over. All right, Danforth. I'll let you know. Danforth took a step toward the door. The door opened and Lieutenant Reagan moved in. Danforth turned, bolted for the kitchen and through the door. When he came back in a few seconds, the two detectives holding him by the arms. Well, Danforth, Reagan said, I nailed you on that notebook after all. Take your hands off me. Why, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about a notebook. You're wasting your breath. We had these rooms wired and Gladys Hillman is working with us. I knew you had murdered your wife, James Haston, and Edna Wales, but I couldn't find a bit of proof, except this notebook he overlooked in Haston's office. Thought I had you cinched with it until I found out Edna Wales wrote shorthand notes that no one else could read. I was up against the stone wall. Then I remembered that I found cold medicine in Edna's rooms, and that she had a rag tied about her neck that was soaked with turpentine. I reasoned that you must have seen that rag and smelled the turpentine, so you might fall for a story that Edna hadn't worked that day. I inquired around, found out Miss Hillman was Edna's best friend. I put it up to her. She agreed to play the part and approached you as a blackmailer. I came up and flashed the red envelope with the stenographer's notebook in it on you. That was the build-up. I knew it would worry you that the red envelope would be in the back of your mind. So when Gladys sprung it on you, you fell for it. You didn't dare turn her down. At last, Danforth was completely beaten. He hung in the detective's arms in a state of collapse. Lieutenant Reagan turned to Gladys. Your brave girl, Miss Hillman, took some time for you to walk in here and face this killer so you could get some admissions down in black and white. Not much nerve, Lieutenant. Every time I started to get shaky, all I do was think of what he did to poor Edna Wales. My best friend. And that is all for this week's episode of the Pulp Nostalgia Audio Cast. Thanks for listening today, and just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.